What if all of your debts were forgiven? Our text this morning is Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us this morning. We pray that you would move among us by the power of your Spirit, upon the preacher and the hearer alike, that one might preach accurately and that all might hear accurately, that we might not simply be hearers of your word, but also doers. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My family and I were driving up the 99 freeway in the San Joaquin Valley in California when we hit a thick wall of what's known as Thule fog. The fog was so thick that we could barely see the road and the gloaming brake lights of the vehicle in front of us. On and on it went, and we dropped our speed to a crawl, and then suddenly the road ahead was revealed. Epiphany means to reveal. And the Epiphany season tracks the various revealings of the Christ and the Gospels. And this morning's text shows us the Epiphany of Jubilee. The Epiphany of Jubilee. We'll see in Luke's Gospel this morning the Epiphany of the Man and the Epiphany of the Mission. So first of all, we'll see the Epiphany of the Man. Go ahead and open up your Bibles. Luke chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 14. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. And it says there, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country. Now, what's happened by this point in time? This coalesces with what we looked at in the weeks before this. Jesus would have been down at the Jordan River. He would have been baptized. He would have been baptized by John. The Father's voice came from heaven. The Spirit came down as a dove. Jesus would have gone out into the wilderness and he would have taken on Satan and defeated him in the wilderness and his temptation of the wilderness. And after this, sometime in this time frame as he's coming forth from coming out of the wilderness, he would have gone to the wedding feast of Cana that we saw last week. But in Luke's account, we see the emphasis on Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Verse 13, right before our text this morning, it says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus went into the wilderness after his baptism. Jesus was in the wilderness with wild beasts for 40 days and 40 nights. He didn't eat any food during that time. He would have been emaciated and on the point of starvation, for he was truly a man and truly God at the same time. Satan appears to have come to him at various times, but then puts in a full court press at the end with various temptations and trials, and Jesus stands firm through all of them and defeats Satan, giving him a beatdown like a cheap snare drum. And so now we pick up the story. Jesus is coming back into Galilee. Jesus, the God-man, came and returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And I want to say this, friends. Ever since Jesus' resurrection and ascension, he sent forth the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, you too go forth in the power of the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's who you and I are. As Christians, we have the power of the spirit coursing through our lives. The spirit is not some sort of force inanimate. The spirit is the third person of the triune God. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, written to a pastor and yet having a broader application to the people of God. The Apostle Paul says, For this reason I remind you to fan into a flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. The God has given us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. By implication, I believe you, the people of God, sitting under those 
who've been set aside for the preaching of the word. We are all priests of the living God. We have the Holy Spirit of God. We go forth in power, in the power of the Spirit in our age. So Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And there's a report circulating all around about him. What is this report about? Well, Jesus is beginning his ministry. He's speaking with powerful words. He's doing powerful acts. When he was baptized, he was baptized and publicly acclaimed as Messiah by John. And he began to minister. John said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so in verse 15 it says, And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Here this mysterious rabbi coming forth from Galilee. Galilee in the first century is a region that the very edge of where Jews are living at this time. They're mostly down in Judea, but they're starting to recolonize this region of Galilee that had been depopulated through the exiles. By this point in time, it's about half Jewish, but there's still lots of Greek speakers that are there. There's all kinds of Gentiles up in that region. It's considered the hinterlands. It's sort of like hillbilly country. And this rabbi comes forth from there. He's teaching in their synagogues. He's being glorified by all. He was glorified by all. That verb there is doxazo. That's where we get our word doxology from. Doxa means glory. He was glorified and honored by all, all around the region of Galilee. And then verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. Now imagine the scene. 30-year-old Jesus returning back to Nazareth. He'd not been gone that long, maybe a couple of months or so. He comes back, the hometown boy, to Nazareth. Nazareth is a small town. It's not necessarily inconsequential. It lies on major trade routes. It's only a few miles from Sephora where one of the sons of Herod has his kingdom and his capital. Likely Jesus and perhaps his father had worked there in building the capital buildings. He might have built the, the palace for the king. Nazareth has a population in the first century of about 500 people. So it is a small town. It's about half Jewish. It's about half Gentile. Jesus would have spoken Greek, the trade language of the day, just like we speak English all over the world. Jesus would have spoken Aramaic, which was the language that the people of God had spoken when they'd been in exile for centuries. Jesus would have likely spoken Hebrew. He would have learned it in the synagogue in this little town of Nazareth. And at 30 years old, he returns to his hometown. Now notice, his custom was already in place as a famous preacher. The synagogue leader would have brought to him, allowed Jesus to read and teach as he brought forth the scrolls from the Law and the Prophets. In the first century, the Jews had a two-fold lectionary. Now, when you look in our bulletin, you'll see that we have actually a four-fold reading. We have a psalm that begins the service, and then we have an Old Testament reading, and then we have a second reading or an epistle reading, and then we have a gospel reading. And you may be thinking, where did that come from? Well, the church has been doing this for 2,000 years. The Jews did this before us. They had a two-fold reading on the Sabbath day. They would have read from the prophets, and they would have read from the law. And we see here that the scroll of the prophets is given to Jesus. Now, he's sitting in his hometown synagogue. He stands up. He would have had a teacher's chair. There would have likely been something like a pulpit or a lectern there. If you go into modern synagogues today, they call them stenders. It looks like a, like a lectern with a, a stand and a top for it. 
The scroll would have been laid out. He would have read from it as a rabbi, and then he would sit down and begin to teach the people. He reads in the place where one would expect Messiah to quote from. Perhaps it was the prophet's reading of the day. Roger Donlin was a legend. I have a copy of one of his many glowing articles of his heroic exploits that he earned the Medal of Honor from as a Special Forces officer in the Vietnam War. But for us, as kids, he was just a man who was a parent of a kid in our school and lived up on General's Hill on the Army base that we grew up on. The revealing of Jesus in his hometown synagogue must have felt a bit like this. The stories of his great exploits were swirling through Galilee, and suddenly, here he was, the local carpenter. He couldn't be Messiah, could he? Now, we've seen so far the epiphany of the man. Now let us take a look at the epiphany of the mission. The epiphany of the mission. Let's go on to verse 18. So Jesus here has the scroll of Isaiah before him. He begins to read from it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The text. The text. It's all read in a way that the person who's reading it seems to be speaking about themselves. Notice what Jesus reads here in Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the good news, to proclaim the good news. By the way, that verb there is euangelizo. That's drawn from euangelion. Again, euangelion means the good news, the gospel, the royal proclamation of the coming of the king to set all things right. He has anointed me to preach the gospel, to liberate the oppressed. He has sent me to, in the Greek here, keruso, that means to herald and proclaim. To herald and proclaim what? The year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor. I want to focus in on that for a second there. The year of the Lord's favor. Bible scholars all through the centuries have equated that with the year of Jubilee. It makes the most sense. I believe that's what Isaiah means. And remember that Jesus is the second person of the triune God, is also the author of the text and the fulfiller of the text. He has sent me forth to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. What is the year of Jubilee? Kids, listen up. This is really interesting. In the Jewish calendar, and we try to replicate that in a traditional church like this, is that our lives revolve around the life of the church, revolve around the calendar of the Word of God, revolve around the life of Jesus. What we're trying to do here is intentionally what the people of God has, have always done. You're going to have a calendar one way or the other. Is your calendar going to have as its most important events things like July 4th and Labor Day? Or is it going to be Christmas? Is it going to be Easter? And so, they had a calendar too in the Old Testament. They had a calendar for the week. They had a calendar for the year. Every seventh year was a Sabbath year. You did not go out and harvest your crops in the seventh year. You let your fields go fallow. In the seventh year, you set free all of your indentured servants. You see in the in the ancient world of Israel, if you became destitute, you had financial difficulty, you could sell yourself or one of your family members off into indentured servitude. They would be in these contracts for as many as seven years. That's why they did this in Puritan New England back in our own history. So you could sell yourself off. But in the seventh year, all these people were set free and the land had rest. But every 7-7, seven, seven, you had a super-duper Sabbath year. It was called the year of Jubilee. And here's what it says in Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 9. 
On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year. It's after the 49th year, the seven sevenths. And proclaim liberty throughout all the land and to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each shall return to his clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the land. Think about that for a minute. Now Israel's set up and... All kinds of familial relations and lands set apart for tribes and clans and families. And over this 49-year period, people would get themselves into trouble. And so they would sell off parts of their land or maybe all of it. Maybe some of you have been foreclosed on before. Maybe some of you have been in the painful circumstance as children where your house that you grew up in, your dad lost his job and the bank came and took the house back. It's a painful thing. People would have sold themselves into indentured servanthood. They might have sold off portions of their land. They might have sold off all their land, lost all of it. But guess what happened? 50th year, a trumpet's blown in the land, and there's a jubilee. You get it all back. Slaves go free. You get your land back again, just as though nothing had ever happened. Imagine a situation like that in our land. Mortgages burned. Back taxes forgiven. Student loans canceled foreclosed property and seized property, returned back to you from the bank. And guess what happened in Israel? It never happened. It never happened. There's no recorded time in the history of Israel they actually celebrated the Jubilee year. And so this thing that was supposed to be a wonderful liberation for the people of God, an amazing celebration that the people would have looked forward to, longing for freedom and liberation, never happened. So instead, it became yet more sin and breaking of God's law that piled up, so they were sent into exile. And yet here comes Jesus. In the fullness of time, Messiah comes, and Jesus comes and says, I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant. And he sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Kids, what do you think that was like? Jesus gets up, and everybody's hearing all these stories about him. By this time, they would have probably heard the story about him changing the water into the wine at the wedding feast of Cana. He probably had done other works, miraculous works by this point in time. He's preaching and teaching and reading in the synagogues in ways that people had never heard before in a powerful way. And he comes into his own hometown synagogue. He reads from Isaiah this very pivotal text here that speaks of Messiah doing this and that in the voice of the reader. And Jesus sat down in the teacher's chair. Everyone's waiting to see what he has to say. Jesus' family relatives, childhood friends that are now grown into adults, older authority figures, acquaintances. All their eyes are fixed on Jesus. They've known Jesus all their life. But now they wonder, do they really know him? Verse 21, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus unpacked this text. He would have probably taught a little bit more on this, but he's saying this scripture, Messiah, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Whoa! This event prophesied over 700 years before Jesus arrives on the scene here reading this text in Nazareth. It's being fulfilled in your very eyesight. 
It's being fulfilled in the very hearing of your words. Jesus, in essence, is saying, I'm the one spoken of in this text, and I'm the one bringing and proclaiming the year of Jubilee. What's that about? What has been fulfilled? What's the Jubilee that's revealed? We see ultimately it's not about giving land back to people in Israel. It's about something way bigger than that. You've been forgiven of the greatest of debts. The Jubilee was a shadow pointing forward to this. The debt of rebellion is the sons that Adam owed to God. Death and wrath has been removed and you stand holy and spiritually restored. You stand holy and spiritually restored, but there's more to that, that, brethren. You will be holy and physically restored on the last day. As Jesus is, so you shall be because of Jubilee. Can I hear an amen to that? I remember the day our home sale closed. The agent called to confirm all the details and delivered a big, fat check into our hands. No more mortgage payment, debt paid. It felt like being reborn. It was a jubilee. The world stood condemned with a huge, unpayable debt owed to God for rebellion against God's covenant and the ingratitude of humanity that was demonstrated at the fall. But God doesn't leave us there, hanging the dock, awaiting our sure execution of richly deserved judgment. But he sends his son into the world to deliver jubilee to an undeserving people. Praise his holy name. How should you be a re recipient of jubilee? How should you act as a recipient of jubilee? With hearts filled with gratitude. Show your gratitude by pursuing God's holy ways and not going back to the ways of the world. Show your gratitude by seeking to grow teaching and discipling your children counter to this foolish age. Show your gratitude by living in community with all the other schlubs who've received a jubilee like you, right here at church with love, patience, and a posture of grace. Luke's gospel has shown us the epiphany of the man and the epiphany of the mission. We've seen this morning the epiphany of jubilee. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great and final jubilee that your son was sent forth to bring and has brought the forgiveness of sins and the restoration of all things. We thank you for this. May you fill our hearts with joy even this day and fill our lives with the Holy Spirit that we might bring others around us into the jubilee. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now you've heard from the Lord through his word. Let us respond back with our tithes our tribute to the king.